So welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And so we are in the middle of a series for Advent, and we've been talking about saints. We started off a couple weeks ago just talking about saints as general, um, who saints are, what, what it means to be a saint. Last week we looked at St. Nicholas, and as we continue to look at, at saints whose saint days fall within the Advent season, we're going to be looking today at... Which saint, Steve? Today our conversation will be for those of you who prefer English names, Lucy, and those who prefer Italian names, Lucia. Um, we're going to be talking about this figure who maybe some folks don't even know that there's any recognition of this person or know her at all, uh, or at best only have a passing familiarity because once upon a time you may have seen a December Christmas card theme with a little blonde-haired girl with candles on her head somehow, and you might not have even known that was, oh, that's St. Lucia, or that's St. Lucy. Um, and it turns out that, sh- that uh, her story is one that goes way, way back, and it turns out, too, that... Um, She's often been associated with uh, uh, things in this coming in this Christmas season, uh, in part because, as, as we noted before, the, the days that are remembered as days remembering particular saints goes back to when people died. Um, so uh, it just so happened she died during uh, our season of Advent, and so there's her story, and here it is. So uh, where, where can you start us off to just to, who is this person? So St. Lucy was born around probably 283, so early, early in church history, um, and not a whole lot is known about his, her historically. She's from the region of Italy, um, and that what we can know is that she was a Christian martyr probably turned in by her fiancé to Roman authorities. And so, like, just that setting, I think there's a whole lot to unpack. But before we get to anything like candle crowns and uh, Scandinavian girls and things like that, um, that... Sometimes we forget, at least I know for me growing up, I didn't spend a whole lot of time at all learning much about those early centuries in Christian mm-hmm. life where it was not only uh, uh, dangerous to be a Christian, but it was downright illegal for you know the first three centuries. And, um, I mean, every so often you would hear about, well, you know, they used to feed us the lions, they used to put us in the Colosseum, but, like, it was a day-by-day challenge to be a follower of Jesus and um, that for this uh, young woman, Lucy... Uh, for whatever spat arose between her and her fiancé, he takes it so bad (laughs) that he turns her in to the authorities and accuses her of being a Christian, that this is a crime that was punishable by death uh, in those centuries. Now, in fairness, there were different... Uh, periods in those first couple of centuries, some sometimes where there was more uh, sporadic or periodic or sort of local persecution against Christians, but by the late second century, like uh, 283 or so, like you say, when Lucy lived, uh, you're around the time of what was one of the worst and most empire-wide official policies of uh, killing Christians uh, for being followers of Jesus. Uh, it was under the Emperor Diocletian, right? Yes. Um, okay, so... like. It, what 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 does even that context mean? Before we get to other legends about Lucy, are there things that that would be helpful for us to to think about to to learn from the life of somebody who who went through a really really difficult circumstance, uh, making the choice to say I'm more devoted to Jesus than I am to having the cookie cutter family with a spouse and kids and that. I mean, like she she was willing to let go of all that because she wouldn't let go of her faith. 
Well, I think part of it is the realization that there's still people out there today that have to deal with this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, while we often talk about the martyrs and the major persecutions of the church being something that happened in those first 300 years before mm -hmm. Constantine made it, you know, the uh, the religion of the day and the religion of um, society. Yeah, there's still people today that very much live this kind of life. Sure, and have to make difficult choices mm -hmm. about whether they'll uh, continue to be faithful to their, their allegiance as followers of Jesus uh, or, or potentially avoid jail time or torture or, or, or harm to their, their loved ones. The, the thing that, that interests me in the, these early centuries of Christian history especially is why the empire got so concerned or upset. Yeah. I mean, like, uh -huh. the, the thing that's interesting to me is that, in a sense, the empire wasn't wrong in the sense that to be a Christian ought to have been understood as subversive of the empire, in a sense, because the the empire wanted unquestioning allegiance of, you, you have to confess that the emperor is lord, and the Christians wouldn't do it. The, 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 the thing that the empire kept wanting people to do, uh, Christians, is, uh, you know, you could worship whatever other gods you wanted the rest of the time, as long as you also burned incense in the name of Caesar, and would confess uh, Kaiser uh, Curia, Caesar is lord. And that was the point at which Christians said, no, we won't do that, or we have a different allegiance and our allegiance is to this Jesus whom you killed and thought you got rid of and it turns out there's his greatest triumph and his greatest victory. That, like, that's what it hung on, that for early Christians it was a matter of we won't give our allegiance to anybody else um, and they were willing to die for that. I mean, it, it, it sometimes frustrates me in the relative comfort we have in 21st century America when people get upset about uh, all sorts of silly things and say Christians are being persecuted. Well, no, it turns out you know, being being uh, killed or fed to lions, or you know, what, or or being thrown in a jail cell mm -hmm. today in some other country uh, for your faith. The, at that point, you have the right to say this is persecution. We have at best discomfort at not being the only person, or the only people in town anymore. You know, yeah, not being wished a merry Christmas during the holiday season. It's not persecution. Right, right, right. That's just getting to know that na other neighbors around me have different traditions and different faith, <laughs> and having to. And for that matter, in the first three centuries. Christians understood they weren't the only game in town. They like they you know went to market and they went to every, you know anywhere they went they were you know running up and down uh, next to people who had different faith and different uh, religion and different uh, traditions and they didn't run around like hating them or you know burying their heads in the sand. That was part of their witness of yeah well of course we'll be we'll interact with them and we'll you know be gracious and kind to them and that's part of how how they were in, intent on on drawing other people to come to know their faith to know about jesus and part of their witness was actually in the martyrdom exactly. and yeah. being willing to die for their faith that their you know non-christian neighbors were going oh man so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so, they are all willing to die for this faith what is this faith actually about that right. inspires such loyalty right right that there's this uh quote of uh tertullian's that sticks in my mind tertullian's one of my favorite of the early church fathers who also later became a heretic but that's a conversation for another day but there's a famous line of tertullian's that um the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's that yeah. sense that like our greatest victory and our greatest power uh, has always been not when we were in the majority voicing, do what we say because we've got the most people around, but when we're willing to lay our lives down and say, this faith is so compelling, I would rather, I'd be willing to lay down my life over it than to give up my allegiance to this Jesus who loves me. That's powerful. Um, I, had, I had a teacher in seminary who, who after quoting that line to us, uh, used to say, we know the church can survive in times of persecution. It is yet 
to be proven if the church can survive uh, in times of comfort. Um, and that's a difficult thing yeah. uh, for us to deal with. And maybe part of the, the angst that our culture feels sometimes in 21st century America is that we're, we can sometimes feel uncomfortable realizing we're not the only people around and not everybody in our neighborhood celebrates Christmas or everybody celebrates it on the same day, you know, if you live in an or- a community where there are Orthodox folks as well. Um, but that that's that's being inconvenienced or being made slightly uncomfortable, that's different than people willing to lay down their lives. So because martyrdom was such a tool of evangelism, mm-hmm. if, if you will, um, oftentimes the stories of the martyrs become very elaborate. Yeah. And <laughs> they're often kind of told like we would tell tall tales. Yeah. And St. Lucy's no different. Like, her story of how she died is out there. Um, I think earlier in our conversation, we compared her death to hearing about the Russian priest Rasputin. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So the the, 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 the things we know for sure uh, in early, early church witnesses is she probably lived in the late 3rd, early 4th century and was martyred because of her faith was quite possibly turned into the authorities because of her or by her fiance but then from there my goodness the legend just expands right how does it go yeah so she is um well to start off with she decides to with this eventual support of her mother her surviving parent because her father has supposedly already died she's going to dedicate her life to god and her virginity to god so she's going to be one of those perpetual virgins never marry and And was willing to give family wealth up as well yeah she was going to donate her entire dowry and again she had her mother's support in this and so this was going to happen her family was now behind her um she told her fiance like hey sorry wedding's off and he of course takes this very poorly (laughs) and um takes her before i think a governor or somebody somebody high up there to turn her in for christianity and from there there was several attempts on her life and it took like five or six before it finally took and she finally died um so, like, at one point, her eyes get plucked out, or she plucks out her eyes. Um, she gets burnt. It, yeah. She gets drugged by oxen. Um, like, several really gruesome things happen to her before finally somebody stabs her with a sword, and that's what does it. Yeah. Now, the, it, the, the, maybe the, the take-home in all this, even though it's weird to say, what's the, what's the devotional or inspirational faith life use for a story as gruesome as that? I mean, like, like you said, some of these things accumulate over centuries tradition that... that whether or not there was all that drama, she did die her, for her faith and yes. her refusal to give her allegiance up to the empire and to the emperor. She's a follower of Jesus. But, like, there is this sense for the early church, and, and I, certainly for later centuries as well, that because um, faithfulness, even to the point of death, is our greatest victory, that, like, uh, if you see uh, uh, religious icons of Lucy, she's often depicted holding a dagger, not because she used it to stab anyone, but it's like supposedly the sword or the dagger that was used to kill her, that it's almost like these things you thought did me in. Nope, there we hold them up in triumph now. Um, she's also often depicted holding a plate with eyeballs in it because of uh, the story about her losing her eyes as well. Um, there's some speculation that because her name, Lucy or Lucia, means light in, in Latin or in Italian, that because the eyes are connected with seeing and light and that kind of business that there's this maybe that's part of why that detail was held on to that that connection is made so closely too yeah and she's now the patron saint of blind people right right yeah and again like like we said before 
uh, all these later accumulations of someone who was the patron saint of this or that area, these are often latching on to some detail that is associated with some story in their life. Sometimes it's totally fitting, and sometimes you go, well, that seems a bit of a stretch. <laughs> um, but the idea of um, finding... I guess, camaraderie or a sense of that there are other people who've gone through things that we go through in life as well. And so there's this, there's this reminder in stories like uh, Lucy's of like, not only there are other people who laid down their lives for their faith, there's other people who've been followers of Jesus and also were blind, or other people who were followers of Jesus and uh, you know, had the relationships broken off. I mean, there's some sense of we don't go through this alone. Um, and that's part of why it's worth, you know, holding up the details of any one of these stories, Nicholas's or, or Lucy's or, or whomever's, uh, as well as the stories like we talked about before of saints in our day, people who we know who are, I mean, even just in our local neighborhoods, families, or church communities, these are stories that are worth telling about how they lived out their faith, what they were willing to, to give up, and what things they did for the sake of being followers of Jesus. So, for all this talk about Lucy, this is not typically how, at least, I was used to seeing her until I did yeah. some research on her. When I when when we first started talking about these saints that fall in Advent, and I, you know, think of St. Lucy, I see this little, what I picture as a Swedish girl. Yeah, a little blonde, Swedish girl, right? Uh-huh. A blonde-haired girl with a wreath on her head and lights. Right, right. And, uh, candles in there. So, where does that fit into all this story because if we're not sure exactly how she died and, and all this <laughs> stuff, where do, where does this Italian girl become Swedish right, how and she now become have a Scandinavian with candles on her head? She, right. Well first of all she dyed her hair blonde. <laughs> <laughs> she bleached it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Assembled the candles at IKEA because she was no um, <laughs> so so one piece of this there's again maybe a, a nugget of historical memory there uh, that has become this much more elaborate pageantry. But one of the other early, you could say, legends about Lucy is that, again, she lives in the uh, late 3rd century, early 4th century, when it's still illegal and when Christians, especially in Rome, are gathering often underground in the catacombs, in the, the places under the underground level where people were buried, but that was an early place where Christians gathered and met, you know, before we started being allowed to have our own buildings. Um... And there's a memory, there's at least some story about her going to visit or bring food to other Christians down there in the catacombs, and her hand's so full of food she just puts the candles or the lamp or whatever up on her head uh, in order to have to, to give light so she could walk and, you know, not be in the darkness or not. Whether whether uh, that actually happened or not, that's the way it gets remembered. Mm-hmm. And uh, some, it's sort of like that line from uh, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, that when the, the legend is more interesting than the fact, you print the legend. Um, and th- this is sort of like the lives of, of so many of these saints. Mm-hmm. You're actual people, and then the legend just gets so much more interesting, that's what people remember. Um, but as, as the Christian faith spread across Europe, um, and then carried with it these powerful stories about early martyrs, people who were willing to live lose their lives. It turns out that uh, as the Christian faith spread into what's now Scandinavia, that story happened to be one that was particularly powerful or evocative. And on top of that, oh, there's candles in this story? Oh, and she died during this time of, light of the year where it gets so dark and it's so close to when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. This becomes this whole additional elaborate uh, ongoing tradition. Uh, and because Lucy's name means light, Lucia means light, there's this sense of, oh, the candles and the light, and it just all fits together. So that in a lot of places, if you are part of a community or a church that has some observance or, or talk about St. Lucy, you usually don't get the glory martyrdom story. You get the, oh, she brought candles. Isn't that nice? Um, and it becomes sort of the symbol uh, of, of the light in the midst of the darkness, I guess. 
And so often we hear that phrase, light in the midst of the darkness. You're right. Especially this time of year. But, I mean, we hear it all year round, and we we think theologically, we think philosophically about that. But that's, in in Scandinavia, in that area, it's literal light in darkness. Sure, sure. Because at the time when Lucy's Saint Days falls, I mean, they're in the midst of their winter, and when you get that close to the Arctic Circle, sure, you're going... 20 hours, 20 plus hours a day sure. in darkness. So any kind of celebration about light, light. in the midst of darkness. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. You know, it, it's interesting to me in, in a sense, um, like like you mentioned, that line about um, the, the light shining in the midst of the darkness comes out of the beginning of John's gospel mm-hmm. in the closest thing we get to a Christmas story in John, which is just, in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was God and He's light and brought light to all people. Um, but... While it's true that, that uh, at, the, at the center of our faith is the God who comes to be the light uh, among us, there's also a sense in which, as the followers of Jesus, we're called to sort of reflect that light around us, too. Um, I, this, is, this is now a cliche, but I've, I've heard it said that Christians are supposed to be like the moon, which doesn't have light of its own, but reflects the sun's light. And that sense of that we're always called to sort of shine or reflect a borrowed light that points people to the light we found in Christ, but that our calling is always, whatever circumstances we're in, to be people who reflect God's light into other people's lives around us. Um, and that's not like a showy kind of a neon sign kind of a light that's like, hey, look at me, but always you know, pointing the way beyond ourselves. Um, that's one of the things I've, I've found helpful so far in our conversation about Lucy and Nicholas and, and others we'll talk mm-hmm. about is uh, less about dwelling on whether this event or this event did or didn't happen, but more like in my own life, where are there places, where are there opportunities we have to shine our own light and um, where are there places where we blow it and we miss out and we look back at the end of the game and go, I had this chance to shine that light and I didn't. I was too afraid or I was too scared or I was too busy or um, I was the priest with the Levite walking the other you know, side of the road and there was a chance to shine in, in the midst of the darkness. Um, that that line calls to mind too another uh, line of uh, Dr. King's Martin Luther King's it, the, the sentiment is maybe one that lots of people have said before but it, it seems like it, it fits with Lucy's story too especially as a martyr um, that famous line of his that darkness can't cast out darkness only light can do that and the second half of the sentence is hate can't cast out hate uh, only love can and the thing that, that sticks in my head there is that for the early Christians, the assumption was, like I mean, including Lucy's story with her martyrdom, the assumption was if push came to shove, you'd be willing to lay down your life, but we weren't looking to organize a big angry mob to go kill other people or something like that. The, 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 the gut reaction of the first few generations and, and centuries of early Christians was if there are people who hate us or are angry or want to round us up, we'll we'll uh, hold fast to our faith. We won't cave on that, but we're not going to go kill them because we're afraid. We'll be willing to lay down our lives, and that becomes our witness. It was it was this community that practiced that kind of nonviolence before they had a word for it. They, they just said, I'm just following Jesus. It, it, you know, For those first several centuries, it was, well, of course I'd be willing to lay down my life. That's what Jesus did. And uh, that connection between that sense of Jesus' way of being in the world is that we're called to be people who don't try and cast out darkness with more darkness, but who, who deal with the darkness by bringing light into it, and who respond to hatred and hostility and violence, not with more of it, not you know, fight fire with fire, um, but who are willing to lay down our lives. That's a powerful thing. Well, especially when you're surrounded by a culture in which you know, armies are invading and forcing their faith upon others. Right, right, right. You know, and this is before the Crusades. You know, this is the good period of the Christian history. <laughs> right, right. Sense, we, we get it wrong so many ways and so many centuries later. This is one of those moments that's worth holding up, right? Yeah. Where, where we're saying, you know, this is our faith. And yes, we want you to believe in this faith because we, you know, because we feel like 
Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only yeah. way to God. But we're not going to force our way to make you follow us. The you know? part of their way of, of part of the, what made their witness compelling was that it wasn't forcefully compelling, it like at the end of a spear or a sword. Yes. It was. Like you said a minute ago, Sarah, like if, if you know your neighbors, like, man, they're willing to die for their faith. I want to find out more about this person, this life, this, you know, what is it you believe that makes this such a difference that not only are you willing to be the, the oddballs, but that you're willing to, to risk persecution or torture or, or having your, your life taken from you. Um, and that that is such a strong strand of the early centuries of Christian witness that we don't have a lot of writings of these people. I mean, we have no idea whether Lucy ever you know wrote any important theological treatise down. In fact, a lot of the people whose lives are remembered in those early centuries, we don't have records of what they wrote. Only a handful of you know those early centuries writings have survived, but their their story becomes their testament. It, it becomes this um, the 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 fact that that allegiance to Jesus was more important than keeping breathing. That that says something powerful about how they lived. And I think while you have you know some families where Christianity has become a generational thing by this point because mm-hmm. it's been around for you know a couple hundred years. You know, you still have people that are converting that have gone from this, right. you know, the pagan faith, the, the Roman faith that's going to make you convert at the end of the end of the sphere, to a faith that says, you know what, this, I'm going to lay my life down for this, and yeah. you did not see that with the other faiths around them. So it really is compelling, yeah, to see this kind of stuff, and and I've. You know, um, see the conversions that happened during this time. And, and to me, it's not even just that they died uh, or were willing to die for their faith, but even that they were willing to, like Lucy's plan wasn't, oh boy, if I'm lucky, they'll murder me, but that she was willing to give away her family's fortune and that the fortune that yeah. could have been hers, uh, whether she used it as a dowry to marry or, or had lived off of that, but that at least the way the legends go, um, and some of these are relatively early legends about her, that she's the one trying to convince her mom, and eventually her mom agrees, but she's the one saying, Mom, let's give this money away so the poor people can use it. Like, that's the default assumption of the early Christian community. And now, you know, here we live in this era where it's almost turned upside down. Why would you give money away? Those poor people are lazy. And instead, like, the early Christian witness was, if you have this vast windfall, of course you'd share it, because I will trust that God will provide for my needs. And that there was this radical assumption of, like, yeah, that's what you do with your resources. You share them because they've been given to you by God for sharing with people rather than they've been given to you as a reward for being a good little boy or a good little girl. There's actually an interesting legend around how St. Lucy convinced her mother to share this dowry with others. Um, So uh, St. Lucy's mother was very ill and had arranged this marriage for her daughter because she knew that she was going to die soon and she didn't have anybody else so she wanted to make sure that lucy was secure in a new family before she died so she arranged for this uh, marriage and saint lucy had convinced her okay well before i get married let's take a pilgrimage there is this shrine to i think saint agatha who was a Christian martyr who had died like 70 years prior. So they traveled to this shrine, um, and um, while there, Lucy went and prayed to St. Agatha, and, you know, how do I get around this? Like, how, like, what do I do? Like, I have already dedicated myself to God. I don't want to go through this marriage. What do I do? And that night, she goes to bed, and St. Agatha visits her in a dream and says, because of your faith, your mother will be healed. And so lo and behold, they wake up the next morning and her mother is Hmm. healed and better. And so it's then that Lucy's able to say, look, we we came here, I prayed, you're healed, 
let's give away our fortune. Mm -hmm. And her mother agreed because Uh she's now no longer living under this death sentence. Right, right, right. There's no longer that fear, huh? Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me, it's it's around this era, not not exactly in the same era uh, because Diocletian is the emperor in in Lucy's life, but around this time, maybe a little bit later, there's an emperor uh, named Julian who's sometimes called Julian the Apostate because as Christianity became more and more popular, he was one of those guys trying to bring the empire back to its old pagan ways, and so he's sort of remembered as this guy trying to turn them back to the old the old greatness of Rome. Um, and as part of his campaign to make Rome so great, he was so upset about uh, the, the influence of Christians. And there's like one of two quotes that, that sticks in my memory of, of uh, Julian's. And so this emperor writing to another you know pagan empire, uh, uh, um, imperial official is bad-mouthing us Christians because he, he just hates our... He, you know, he calls us the Nazarenes. Uh, and he says, those Nazarenes, they're taking care of our poor as well as their own. Um, and everybody sees... Like, his, his, his complaint is... We pagans do as good a job as those Christians are at taking care. Of, they're not just taking care of their own; they're taking care of other, uh, you know, the, the even, even non-Christian poor people too. And this is this is his. He's upset that like Christians get it in a way that you know his other fellow pagans don't. Like, there's something powerful to me about that. Like, that was the early witness for those first few centuries that the the followers of Jesus didn't say we only take care of our own, and they didn't say we're all going to keep our fortunes for ourselves or for my rainy day. It was like the assumption was we can trust the same God who went to a cross for us. To give us what we need. So yeah, if I've got abundance, we share, we take care of each other, not just our own. And that was compelling. That made people want to find out about it. As soon as it becomes easy and comfortable and fashionable to become followers of Jesus, something difficult or unfortunate happened uh, in the life of the faith too. But Lucy's story maybe reminds us of uh, the the, the maybe cost to this life, but there's something compelling about those who are willing to lay down their lives. The idea that she's willing to give away her dowry you know, not only is she is she giving away great wealth, but then it's almost she's saying, "I'm willing to live as the poor live." Right, right, right. You know, so it's not just giving away money, but then keeping enough so that she still lives a comfortable life. Right. You know, she's willing to not just help the poor, but to live as one of the poor. It reminds me a lot of Mother Teresa. Yeah, and that sense too of what that means as far as giving up maybe the cookie cutter picture of what life is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, here are her parents wishing for her, we want you to have this, you know, at least her, her mom after her father dies early on, but like, you know, we want you to have this life with, you know, kids and a, and a, and a spouse and have, you know, this mm-hmm. good, comfortable life and Lucy has to get it that giving away this money that could have been the, the marriage dowry means quite likely giving up on that kind of a life and her sense of being, no, I'd, I'd rather be uh, devoted to God. Um, I think later centuries turned that into a, look, you can impress God by making these vows. And that, that's not, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's where, where we're at in the second or third century. There's just the sense of, like, I'm willing to let go of the life everybody else assumes is, quote, quote unquote, the good life. And sometimes that's an important voice we need, too, because so often religious-sounding voices in our day sort of say, you should be a devout Christian because it will be your key to the cookie-cutter life. You know, mm-hmm. be a good Christian, and that will get you. Mm-hmm. You know, romance and kids, and your kids will, you know, be in the honor roll, and, you know, whatever. Like, that. it's sort of a, I like to use God in order to get this other thing that I want that looks socially acceptable. And Lucy's story is one of those, like, that turns that on its head and says, God is... is the, the God I've met in Jesus is, is so compellingly good. I'm willing to lay down all those other things and, and let go of the cookie-cutter life of the, the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence and the dog. Um, and maybe that's something that's worth uh, holding on to in this season, too, that it's okay if we don't get the white picket fence and the 2.5 kids uh, and all that, that sometimes uh, the most powerful and, and fulfilling kind of life breaks that mold. 
Well, um, I hope that our conversation today has been at least a little bit enlightening. No pun intended. Um, oh, I intend it. <laughs> okay, we're going to sin boldly and own our puns. Um, but anyway, uh, our, our series on uh, saints or older brothers and sisters in the faith who have something to teach us in these Advent days will continue on next time. Thanks for listening. See you guys. Bye. Bye.